Welcome to We Should Probably Be Studying. My name is Paula Kincaid, and I am joined with my co-host and dear friend, Nick Johnson. Nick, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paula? Oh, I'm good. I could not complain. So if you're new to this podcast, be sure to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast streaming platform you're using, because that will help spread awareness of our podcast through some sort of fancy algorithm that makes more people see our show. So be sure to give us a five-star rating. Yes, we need to stay in the algorithm. Also, uh, make sure you hit the follow button so you can stay up to date with our future content. We are just a guy and a girl trying to leave our mark in the social sciences. And the purpose of this podcast is to get the behind the scenes take on really interesting articles being published in the top management and organization journals from the people who know the work the best, the authors themselves. Whether or not you're a nerd at heart like me and my co-host Nick, or just a regular Joe or Jane Doe, we hope to provide an outlet for all people to learn about really interesting and insightful research, regardless of who you are and what you do to contribute to society. So sit back and relax. And enjoy our show. This is We Should Probably Be Studying. Now, normally with our recordings, Nick and I are pretty good at remembering to start the recordings way ahead of time of the meeting, but um, yeah, in this case, that didn't happen. So I'm actually going to introduce our guests today based on what they had told us in the interview. Arajit Chatterjee is a professor of management at the Essex Business School in Singapore. Anjan Gush is a strategic management faculty member at Nargis University in Kazakhstan. And both Arjit and Anjan entered their PhD programs coming out of industry. So in other words, that means they did not go straight from their undergrad degree to their master's and to their doctoral degree. Essentially, they obtained their undergrads, went and worked in the corporate world, and then decided to come back to academia and get their PhD. So in the conversation you are about to jump in and listen to, we hear Anjan talking at the tail end of his discussion about why he decided to enter into a PhD program. And as the bonding grew with the organization, I was also recruiting from there. What I really got absolutely impressed was the corridor talk or the level of informal intellectual talk. Although I tried hard, I could not be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that only PhD could get me there. So after I retired from corporate, I went back to the same Indian Institute of Management, Calcutta, to do my PhD. That's it. What is it? Well, you know, I mean, um, I will be 50 soon. Um, I don't know what's the average age, age here. I think Anjan is close to my age, I guess. But yeah. uh, I did my MBA 20 years ago. And uh, you know, while I was in the second year of my MBA, uh, uh, friends uh, were looking for various jobs as bankers or as marketers, and I realized uh, I'll be a misfit in in a, in a private firm. I mean, it was difficult for me to be loyal to a firm which uh, has its purpose set out to sell something, and and it's very difficult for me to do that. So then, from second year, I realized I must uh, pursue higher studies. And um, well, um, uh, and I was curious about uh, various questions. For example, um, 
you know some lingering uh, doubts about economics and so on so i realized i must understand uh, social sciences better so i'm the same way i i was i'm a question asker and i was like when i was in industry i felt as if there i had more questions than answers you know so i yeah. understand you know the driving force there <laughs> good good for you nick yeah just one uh, something to add i'm just tempted to add if i'm allowed to so when i uh, joined the phd program i only applied to that indian institute of management calcutta we call it iimc and i had no idea about publication and other things i just wanted to be part of the institute so yeah you get answers from uh, yeah, now you get answers from both extreme points yes yep. thank you <laughs> Just give us a little elevator pitch about your paper for people that haven't read it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a long paper, so, but I hope people read it. Um, you know, I mean, um, so elevator pitch. How many? How much time do I have? <laughs> as much time as you would like. <laughs> okay. So, um, as we in today's time, you know, there are a lot of challenges in today's world, uh, starting with climate change and. gender issues and human rights and and marine pollution uh, various things right it's very easy to also find people who are doing excellent work in in, in many of these areas right uh, but you know as i said i'm nearing 50 and since from school i've been hearing that you know there are malnourished children or or there are these uh, places in in south asia i where i come from or in parts of africa or some parts of rural uh, rural areas in different parts of the world there are these lingering issues so if there are people who are doing excellent work in in many different areas then what was also or is also intriguing is the longevity of these issues you know i mean uh, will these things keep continuing i mean it's like a given that you know till 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 we die these things will keep happening and it's like a you know a fixture on our this thing okay feel sorry for the poor souls and and keep going on you know so, uh, so even if there are these uh, these um, uh, excellent works done in small pockets uh, they do not scale as much as we would like right maybe they do not want to scale you know or so one um, or maybe they have tried and but but you know they could not uh, we don't know but but uh, there are essentially two more the 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 the, the dominant model of scaling is uh, people are looking for replicable models easy and you know like like a model you know uh, like like making a car sort of you know and then you um, use that blueprint and keep applying it wherever you go and uh, that's what we call uh, spreading out horizontally mm-hmm. so you have been successful at one place then you what is called a delocalized replication you know mm-hmm. and uh, the other way is uh, what we also know is a translation you know mm-hmm. that to adopt is to adapt and so on so you basically change tweak your thing a bit and then you adapt to the the new context but um, there is also but both of these things require a lot of money and resources right uh, but what we were seeing is that uh, what we found from our paper is that uh, there is some kind of vertical movement where you you do not spread horizontally only but also reach out to people 
uh, higher, uh, not higher in the sense people with uh, more resources and more mandate. That's their job. So, so you reach out to those people and then sort of get access to more resources. And with those resources, you again apply it to other locations, other places, and you keep doing that. You know? mm-hmm. Then the entire burden of uh, scaling your beautiful model or your that has come out of a lot of effort, you do not have to really put entire burden on yourself to get resources and raise funds and so on. So uh, what we found is that uh, there is this uh, scaling out horizontally and mm-hmm. also scaling up, which is going vertical to access resources from uh, the lack of a better word, resourceful actors who, who then uh, uh, sponsor your next cycle of scaling. So this is a recursive process of scaling out and scaling up and also scaling down because uh, just uh, throwing money at project is not enough. Um, it also requires uh, careful deploying of resources. And uh, these three things uh, keep repeating themselves. And over a period of time, you access more locations and you achieve not only scale, but also impact. Well, and I think you guys did a really good job with transporting us into your case study. And I was really hooked emotionally from the beginning at the very opening paragraph because I'm a parent myself and my son will be two in December. And so it really resonated with me how upsetting of an experience this could have been for you when you had heard about the two-year-old not living. And I was just curious, how do you go about discussing such an emotional or upsetting experience with our research journals? I'm just curious if reviewers ever gave you feedback in terms of you should keep it, you should take it out, or anything along those lines. So this is the way it started. First, let me tell you how Origit and I met together. Mm-hmm. So as I told you, she was my professor. He was a visiting professor at IM Calcutta. Uh, and he was teaching us research method as well as field research. Then kind of, uh, you know, as it happens, we, we got separated. But then uh, as I went into my dissertation topic, I wanted to work in the third sector because I was already into corporate. So this is one world which was uh, I, I never had an access to or I never really had a chance to understand it. So that was the time I, I went to the field and I started understanding what is called development sector. So as a part of this, I was following or I sought help of the Indian government's women and child development operations. And that took me to the interior part of the country uh, where things were very stressful in terms of poverty, in terms of climate, in terms of anything that you can think of. And there, you know, it was completely a different reality altogether, where child malnutrition and death, these things uh, were almost part of an everyday life. But the good thing is neither the society, nor the government, nor the NGOs, they were giving up into it. So we started from there, and that took me to Simi, the organization that we found was working in the field, as Origit 
told you in the location as well as with government and other other uh, bilateral or humanitarian agencies mm-hmm. so when i went to sini that was kind of a good accident odijit was also at sini with uh, his project student from singapore so that was the time we got an opportunity to meet again and we were just discussing something with sini member and sini members one of the core members he was telling us that you know 30 years ago we just had like 10000 beneficiaries that we were reaching now we are reaching millions and i still remember that moment or just looked at me and he said anjan this is scale shift this organization is still small still resource constrained but from 10000 they are now reaching Five six million, and I still uh, remember he said, "Kelshi Sanjan and Tima Bansal," and that was the time I went back to him. He was my teacher, right? I said, "What is Kelshi?" And that is the time things happen organically, you know. And we agreed to this project. So uh, going back, as you could see, what we were seeing, what we were talking, that was our empirical data. Okay. we were theorizing our theorization was on this data and this data was very much part of our finding okay so the particular uh, statement or quotation that you see in the paper it was part of our finding but one of the reviewers by the way we considered these three anonymous reviewers and the editor as like the other four co-authors of our of our thing they said at some point in the review cycle that this particular quotation or this particular incident kind of problematizes the entire uh, entire i would say episode or the research question because it says that the parents the government every, the society everybody knew that the child was sick everybody did their part but that was not enough so it was i would say an encouragement or an advice from the reviewer to take it to the front mm. so i would say it came from there did your research question change throughout the case study or the review process or did you go in and ha- have a mindset of this is what we want to know and this is what we're going to go find out or did it you know because it's organic in the you know in the field did that change well um, you know i mean we have gone through a long review process okay i do not want to dissuade any uh, any listener or 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 a phd student to take up qualitative research i think you should but uh, we have gone through a long review process and the paper has only improved uh, over the over the years it has been at in review for about uh, more than 2 years actually mm-hmm. okay uh, close to two and a half years okay and um, but as you can imagine i mean the paper's title also has changed over the years uh, i have an excel sheet open in front of me so i, I can just read out from there <laughs> it started with something called imbrication you know if you, i don't know if you're familiar with the word imbrication it's about you know fish fish scales uh, on top of each other right and and how things are intertwined well uh, then we we were thinking of it as some kind of institutional work and that's that was our framing in the beginning 
And our research question at the time was, uh, how can local organizations address grand challenge? Because this was a very positive thing for us that well, a local organization has taken it upon themselves and achieved success. Okay. Mm -hmm. Most uh, will feel helpless, you know, and sort of well, what can be done and 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 so on. Uh, so that was our research question in the beginning, and then uh, then uh, we shifted to uh, what we called uh, nested scaling because uh, you are slowly moving from the community to uh, to local representatives to the state government to the national government to multilateral agencies, right? So there, there is a lot of levels there okay and uh, our question again remain uh, sort of the same but also a little bit changed at how can local organizations achieve large scale impact okay if you read our paper you know uh, we show a graph where uh, the number of beneficiaries are increasing over the years and also the amount of funding that CINI has received from the government has also increased so that's a phenomenon, right? And and um, one thing about qualitative research is there must be something to be explained, right? So this this was our first thing that well, at least just like anything, well, as long as you have variance, you have something to explain, right? Yes. For us, um, if, if everything is the same, well, that could be another question: why people things don't change? You know? But uh, in our in our paper, that graph was something that we were looking for an explanation that how could increase so then uh, finally we had to we could not uh, we thought we understood from the reviewers of course that we are not really explaining institutional work because that would mean that CINI has been able to change uh, institutions <laughs> and uh, that's basically having a lasting impact on the institutions and which would uh, which would sort of uh, require different kinds of evidence, you know, mm -hmm. how, how you know, norms have changed or how the rules of the game, sort of, if you can say, have, have changed. So um, instead, uh, we uh, discarded so that framing, institutional work, and we focused on scaling. The final research question was, uh, you know, explaining the same phenomenon, but how can a grassroots organization work across locations and scales to address grant. You know, it sounds as if your paper went through many changes throughout the process. Did you give any pushback to the reviewers, um, you know, where there's like, hey, you know, maybe change this or, you know, change that. And you said, no, I feel as if, you know, this is what needs to be in the paper. Uh -huh. So I can tell you one, uh, I think, in, you know, you do not want to, uh, I, I should not say that you have to sort of uh, get into acquiescence, you know, that uh, to please reviewers. But, but at the same time, you have to sort of understand that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, everybody loves uh, their baby, right? Yes. Um, right. I mean, even if the baby is throwing tantrums and disturbing everyone in the restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like that. It's your labor of love. And, and you, you think, well, everybody is going to love it. Um, and and that's not the case <laughs> all the time. So uh, reviewers have that advantage, you know. They they are able to distance themselves from the paper, and you must take advantage of that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but we made uh, we sort of didn't take their advice once, and I think they were kind enough to give us another chance when they said, you know, uh, do not get into institutional work, you know. 
Mm-hmm. So we sort of, uh, in a backhanded way, we talk, we named it scaling work. <laughs> Try it one more time. That uh, that can we defend this thing of institutional work? And I said, well, no, it didn't work. But they were kind enough to give us another chance, <laughs> and uh, realized well, this is not working. And we were not because we had to please the reviewers, but we were convinced ourselves mm-hmm. that it required different kind, different uh, kinds of evidence. So we focused only on scaling. And we, uh, I must also say that internally, when three of us we discussed, I must tell you the reviewer comments were very strong, very long, but mm-hmm. we loved those. So we were kind of determined every time we took around two weeks to a month to understand their comments that these are solid, these are only going to improve our paper. So let's work on that. So that even during COVID time, uh, just to get confirmation on the data or additional clarification, we hit the field. That was the power of the review and the way they pushed us towards excellence. So with qualitative work, since the changes that they do ask you to do can be time consuming when they have given you a window of time in which you have to return the paper to them. Was that three months? Was that like six months? Was it a year? About how long do reviewers give you with the qualitative work to work on the changes? I think we were comfortable with the time that they gave. So one thing that we did and we pushed each other when we were into the field work, it was a very detailed one. You know, we had files of our notebooks and other things. So for us, the time took to get into the data. It was not about additional data collection. Um, can I uh, sort of jump in here because I have the dates here. So every every time we were given four months. You know, <laughs> this was uh, most of it was during COVID, and. Uh, well, I was stuck in a small apartment for a long time, and uh, um, in, in between, I could travel a bit, but uh, we had so much of data that, you know, we could actually browse through all the documents. We had the meeting minutes, and we had the annual reports, and, and uh, very detailed data, so we could actually use that time. Um, to, so we didn't have to ask, we didn't need to ask for additional time. But I'm sure, you know, that if you need it, I mean, I'm sure that uh, editors will be uh, will be happy to grant you that extra time. Hmm. Yes. And so I was listening to a podcast um, when I was in London last week, and one of the things that I heard was that different countries have different rules in terms of like an IRB process, and so my knowledge, it can be quite challenging, especially if you're doing like a case-based research to kind of know exactly what it is that you're going to ask every time you talk to somebody. And so the IRB can also be kind of challenging. And so I was wondering in your experiences, did you have um, an IRB process that you had to go through before you um, started working with people in the field? Or did you guys just, were you able to skip that or how did that work? So I think, uh, first of all, we did not have that kind of requirement. And second, I think purely from the philosophy of research, as researchers, we were trained to go closer to the truth ethically. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, uh, as you would find in our method, 
anytime we had interactions with people, uh, we sought their permission for all sort of conversations. So any stakeholder group that we met, you know, I was a participant, uh, kind of a participatory person within CINI. So within CINI, everybody knew I was a researcher. And then when uh, I went to the field as an independent researcher, all with, uh, with CINI, everybody knew that I was doing research and we sought their permission. But you know, with participant observations in public space, it's all recorded. We have complete audit trails. So going back, we are seeking the truth ethically without harming anybody. I think that was our philosophy. And uh, we stuck to that. Orijit, you would like to add anything on this? Uh, nothing, uh, just that, you know, we have tried to, uh, we have, uh, I think, mentioned the real names of people in the paper uh, whenever they have given us permission. And when they did not, then we sort of, uh, I think we mentioned their designation without mentioning the proper name. Do you have any advice for researchers who want to do field work, qualitative work? Um, did you run into any challenges that you could give advice for so people do not uh, face those challenges as well? Uh, so early in the early in the field research, one thing already I and our co-author we we discussed, as we said, we'll try to go deeper to the deeper to the truth ethically. One thing we knew that it would be extended field research and it would be true ethnography. Recently, I mean around that time when we're doing our literature search, we came with a term, uh, you know, jet plane ethnography, where people just go do interview, come back. We said, no, let's get through to the two part of ethnography. Ethno means becoming native and graphy means writing. So the first thing, if somebody is doing field-based qualitative research with interview, observation, and archive as data sources, yes become ethno, otherwise people would not open up. And you can see in our method, it's like we said uh, that interviews could be close to 50, but endless number of conversations, uncounted number of conversations throughout the four or five years we were in the field. So the first thing is do not compromise on, on the extended deep field work. Okay. okay? Uh, the second part is uh, be honest to the methodology. We, we followed grounded theory and process theory. We combined that. And at the same time, as you do your analysis, keep a tab on the recent method development. Because what we found, I would give you two examples. We were discussing uh, whether to go with uh, Anne Langley process study or the Joya, uh, you know, coding grounded theory. But then uh, we saw a paper by uh, Ansari of Cambridge, Charles Ansari, which combined these two, which made our life easier. Mm -hmm. Then when we are speaking metaphor and working on the theoretical model, we got another uh, paper by Anne Langley, which said, to, to represent a complex process, you need to visualize, you need to be poetic. So we got, although we were you know, working on the data, it gave us freedom to open up our mind 
and that also guided us or we told you we played with five metaphors at different point of review mm-hmm. but this is this freedom and being poetic being uh, uh, this kind of helps us to land at our final metaphor so so i would say yes these two one is for data collection and for analysis keep a tab on the method that you are following yeah. and arjit would love love this for 3 years almost like every day almost like every day and let me tell it like this way i fought with arjit and he fought with me <laughs> in the world uh, in the world it called as debate and discussion ideas and direction came out of that mm-hmm. so you know having this when you are working with uh, a team be open in expressing your ideas because uh, that's the way it it kind of helps you to go to your destination so yes debate and discussion more debate and less discussion i would say um we had just interviewed um Dr. Christopher Myers uh from John Hopkins and he just recently had an ASQ that was published um over um medical transport uh teams and so he was a sole author on that paper and for him in his experience with an ethnography all of his ideas were internal and so for him it didn't make sense for him to have another um co-author and I totally understand that um so it's interesting to hear this you know debate and discuss because a lot of times when people do engage in ethnography work they are by themselves and so i think it gives a different perspective as to how you can approach an ethnography and remember we were in three locations so it cannot be a project meeting where everybody say oh nice work and go back so i think uh, 3 years uh, that was kind of which which drove us we were uh, so every person we were getting into scholarly argument which is part of philosophy right foundation of philosophy is in argument and for 2 3 hours we were arguing with each other and uh, coming out with a conclusion so that was brilliant i miss those days i am looking forward to our next research together yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely oh, please add you know one of the things uh, in uh, the paper uh, of course is a visual representation and um, i think it is not given enough uh, importance perhaps uh, it is uh, more importance given on the data structure and all of that that's important i recall denny was with us at penn state so i know him very well uh, then he has retired this year actually you know? i know and uh, so uh, and um, the so the visual if you look at our paper you know there's one uh, figure which talks about the which shows the visual mapping of the data and uh, then there is a theoretical model from it which is uh, more sanitized and is not as detailed detailed yeah yeah so um, that is uh, something i would uh, sort of uh, if i have to give any advice to to phd students focus on that you know how you can uh, visually map your data well and okay. and uh, that requires a lot of freehand drawing on Yes. So paper, uh, different ways to and and uh, metaphors are important here, you know, um, in process theory, in in theory in general, um, uh, not uh, because you want you know uh, clever phrases, 
but uh, because uh, so that you can at least depict you know that process uh, in a way that is easily understood you know mm-hmm. so um, so here we we had started with uh, imbrication uh, you know there is no imbrication in, in organizational world right you cannot see it it is also a metaphor then we talked of nested scaling uh, that's also a metaphor we talked about um, then we chanced upon weaving one of the reviewers and the editor uh, you know jennifer howell grenville she also suggested that we use weaving and then we finally we it was actually onjon who, who had visited a, a textile factory and 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 saw what is double weaving and it's like two layers of textile you know they they put together and said well this is what we are doing and and we 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 uh, sort of all three of us agreed that yes uh, we can use double weaving as a metaphor uh, even to find the metaphor that was another exploration field research i went to a textile factory actually too and i said you know the data is saying something you are doing horizontally vertically do you have a technology which does that and they said yes double weaving Uh-huh. so that's one thing and origit uh, another request i think origit has a great suggestion for for overall scholarship especially for doctoral work uh, which is about reading so origit uh, will you please take my request to talk about your philosophy about reading uh, no no there's no i think is exaggerating a bit but but uh, i think there was one of the things about you know how can you write uh, good theory I, i think you know uh, the uh, only way to write well is to is to read a lot of books you know and um, you just have to read more <laughs> you know and um, i would say do not read uh, just boring journal articles you read lots of the other things uh, you also keep your ears and eyes open and and uh, see what's going on in the news and you can you know we are theorizing all the time you know i mean in terms of lazy theorizing right yeah. but uh, everybody has their theories right about the world about everything right mm-hmm. um, and uh, but it is important to read read more you know mm-hmm. um, i don't think we can uh, do better theorizing by uh, listening to advice about theorizing <laughs> i think um, I, i think it might help definitely but of course but it, brings, uh, it brings another point i remember uh, recall how it helped us this particular suggestion because the reviewers were pushing us they were like because initially we were a little skeptical about you know keeping the emotional part one side and so provide dry data because it was rich data but the reviewer said to us you have spent five four long years there okay get your experience also become part of it okay mm-hmm. so it's rich data they are saying the reader should read it through through you so get your experience get that life inside finding and that as origi said really doesn't come only from theory but from all sort of reading i think uh, barnard is a well reader origi is a reader and other i mean working with them i also became a reader but i was reading various kinds of other things so that really came so you need to be a very balanced uh, you need to have a very balanced reading portfolio mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, 
that might be uh, one of the things you know i think anjun mentioned this about uh, came across this phrase called jetnography right i think it came from sp bates article article in human relations he was sort of bemoaning the lack of organizational ethnography mm-hmm. you're saying that well nowadays you know uh, no yes, ethnographer no ethnographer travels uh, with toothbrushes they are sort of in and out of a setting and a series of flying visits and um, that actually doesn't give you a lot of insight into yeah. into you know because with 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 teaching schedules and you know all that mm-hmm. you have to come back be in the classroom and things like that so that requires also kind of uh, a bit of doggedness that you know I have to be there uh, you, you might have to stay away from family for a long time mm-hmm. all of that you know um, and Paula you said you have a 2 year old kid and it, it will be difficult uh, right in those circumstances um but um uh, about, about reading you know i think uh, it's very important to read uh, articles from many disciplines you know um uh, history history i think is a great uh, a great teacher right so uh, if psychologists read sociology you know that would make their research much more rich if sociologists read a bit of psychology that would make them make their research more rich uh, i think people get stuck with their with the methods they learn during the phd program right uh, psychologists do uh, construct validity all their life right um, sociologists do you know i mean cox regressions uh, all the time and economists are doing you know uh, sort of um, time series analysis all the time so people not only they stuck with theory they got stuck with methods and um, i remember denny sort of defending his uh, uh, what's called the joya methodology you know with with kevin uh, kevin was also at penn state and um, saying well uh, some people sort of thought of it as a positivist kind of a take and uh, it's like you know that uh, these three steps of uh, uh, primary and aggregate dimensions like almost like regression that you know if you go to a setting and uh, anybody uh, would find the same codes right mm-hmm. that was that was the criticism of the method but you know i mean but then i think mike pratt has a nice uh, article on anj about uh, about you know the boilerplate and he says well you also have to show the data right not not just to talk about it mm-hmm. so there the data structure is important uh, there's some discipline there um, at the same time you know i think in our phd t- uh, days uh, there was this uh, article on constructivist grounded theory by by kathy charmas right mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, that was about you know that um, it, it was it was about you experiencing also right and asking uh, people in the hospital right so i think that's important as well let's throw out some ideas for how scholars either phd students or junior faculty or even even full professors how could they build off of the work and the findings that you have in your paper and how do you think they could further make contributions to this research i'm just uh, yeah so a couple of things first of all if you see our theorization we are opening up uh, two dimensions one is the location another is the scale but because of volume and because of this higher order theorization within the scale we did not theorize that means we anything higher than location we kind of 
club those into one layer. But what we believe, you know, uh, the national government versus the regional government, is there any dynamic? Are there differentiations there? So one thing uh, that we find or we think that there are a lot of a lot of scope for work to kind of uh, explore further in opening up various layers of of scale. That uh, that's the first thing comes into my mind. The second thing which comes into my mind is you know every grand challenge has its own characteristics. So child malnutrition is complex and it has its own characteristics. We really do not know whether the same model would be applicable in other kinds of grand challenges. And these days, uh, it's kind of, you know, all grand challenges are interconnected. So a climate change would uh, create refugee problem, a refugee problem would create poverty, uh, and, and this kind of thing. So we really find a lot of scope in kind of testing and expanding this particular model in other contexts and in interrelated contexts with the right kind of consideration with the layers in scale. I think that works for, for our academic listeners, but I was actually going to ask like a follow-up question for our non-academic listeners who want to you know, undertake grand challenges. What can they learn from your research? First of all, the confidence that, uh, first of all, the possibility that you can work with location and the scale together. That means you can work with the society to solve the problem. But at the same time, you can have your exchange with higher level actors. This particular uh, work provides one type of solution in working with both the dimension and finding or continue to work in, in mitigating the problem. So that's my take on this. So it's all about the reality that you need to work with location and scale. And the second one is the realization that working with location and scale is possible for even a small organization. And our theorization kind of pro- provides the framework uh, for the practitioner. Yeah, Thanks, thanks, Anjun. So uh, let me start with a a simple issue and then I'll come to the more supposedly complex ones. First is, you know, that child malnutrition is a um, very vivid experience, you know, that uh, we have all seen uh, what's called Kwariyoshkor in in Africa, you know, the the, the pictures of of, uh, bellies of young children, you know, I mean, and also uh, sort of enlarged uh, craniums, right? So, um, and that we have got used to things, you know, and there's a famous experiment by by uh, Kahneman and uh, Barbara Fredrickson called duration neglect, you know, which basically, you know, it's scary what you can get used to, you know. Uh, you see a three hour horror movie, you only remember the peak and the end. You do not remember for how long you have been watching the horror movie, you know. So, so child malnutrition is sort of sort of picks a hole in duration neglect. It is so vivid. It is very vivid for the mother, for the family, and for um, also very embarrassing for the government. Sure. Yes. Right. Whereas you know, I mean, crumbling infrastructure or gender issues or 
marine pollution or you know i mean uh, like guzzling fossil fuels like nobody's business those things are not as vivid right. you know so the question is that for grand challenges which do not give off vivid pictures like child malnutrition you know things like malaria for example you know mm. just find out how many people die from malaria every year you know, so uh, so uh, and those things are not vivid so the question is that uh, how do you deal with such issues uh, grand challenges yes. uh, you know the first second is uh, grand challenges the word grand is there because it impacts large populations right now what is grand uh, it, it 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 varies from people to people depending on which country you are a citizen of you know your your, your socio economic situation and and all of that so one uh, shortcut is to look at united nations uh, sustainable development goals yes right now, now there are 17 of them but there are huge problems with those 17 goals you know because some of the goals are actually in contradiction with other goals oh. uh, i mean i mean i don't want to do, uh, let me uh, sort of uh, because i said that so let me say <laughs> let me sort of be more specific there so uh, here you know there's the 17 goals for example you know one of them is uh, about sdg number 9 it says industry innovation and infrastructure sdg number 8 says uh, decent work and economic growth okay and now uh, sdg 13 which is climate climate action okay uh, so uh, well uh, one could clearly put all research from business schools in sdgs 8 and 9 and be very happy about it that you know we are addressing the sustainable development goals uh, of the un <laughs> right and now these are grand challenges right so it's about framing right so i don't think these these goals need to change i don't know who made them but maybe they need to take a relook at yeah. so they're clearly at odds with climate action you know uh, right uh, on which industry right <laughs> i mean uh, how much growth right so uh, those are important and uh, as onjun said uh, one of the things in our paper is it's a, it's a schematic between two levels there could be multiple levels from your communities uh, to from if you start with an individual then family then community then you know local representatives then your your federal government or in india the central government and and so on right so there could be multiple layers there and um, there could be the scale part of it could be quite complex but we have shown in the in our schematic in the diagram uh, there are two levels right just uh, grassroots and uh, high level high okay. scale high level actors so i guess other than you know just like continue to read what other advice do you have for phd students who want to make you know really impactful re- you know research why do you feel as if you were successful in this paper like what can you know phd students like paula and myself learn from you well i don't think it is difficult to sort of set out with the goal of making an impact like that mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for example you know somebody who wants to cure cancer it may not be a person with high empathy <laughs> because it is about research right yeah. uh, uh it's difficult to sort of set out on that goal that i'll make an impact also depends on uh, the application right okay. i think you know in one of the interviews that jim march gave to harvard business review uh, one the interviewer i think he asked uh, well what is the 
relevance of your esoteric theories so i think i still recall that answer i think jim march said uh, many initiatives fail if the toilets in the organization do not function and then basically said that it's my it's not my job to sort of fix the toilets basically what he was saying is that some problems are are about execution you know yeah. and, uh, so it's also the how you know so so that's important too and uh, to be able to do that i think uh, it's very important to understand not only the content also the process to get more grasp over your research context is what i would suggest okay. and uh, the last thing is uh, you know the, the question is more important than the answer you know Mm-hmm. so uh, really have to be able to ask the right question you have to read a lot beyond the journal articles and and so on i think i would go i would go little bit into uh, into personal stories if you allow me yeah. so one of the things uh, my phd guy who is also sogato who is also very close to origit uh, when you know i came i came to a phd at the age of 36 that was the year i took my enrollment right and uh he told me one thing because i was discussing what would be a topic because as i told you i had no idea what i would do but he stressed a lot he said go to the field see things come back to the theory try to see whether there are, there is a problematization opportunity or not something that theory cannot explain but he also provided lot and lot of emphasis on soul searching So, he so. said, "Just do not do it mechanically. Do you want to do it? Can you stay with it for some time? Because what happened? He explained that sometimes you know you do something and then you have this publication pressure, early stage career, and the big work goes into a small outlet." He said, "You'll have to have that conviction that would come from your soul searching, your empirics, and your theory." and you will have to speak to it so it took me a longer time but i am not complaining <laughs> and by the way i think i become the second person to publish in nj and the first person was also under the same guide and he did in quantitative so purely from a qualitative perspective but it sometimes i feel i should not suggest it to early stage scholars in india because you know i worked in corporate for a long time it was just something i was experimenting with life but on the other hand uh, i see the power of soul searching and continuously reading and as origit said and being very close to the data and close to the rich data it kind of shows you the way so that's my two cents on this well congratulations that yeah. is oh, so impressive um, um, credit goes to my co-authors and uh, maybe well um, i know what uh, i would suggest that uh, sort of do not just uh, uh, focus on uh, you know 40 or 50 page uh, journal article as the only format uh, of yeah. scholarship i mean uh, i mean that would be a mistake i think you know i mean you could think about writing a book from a dissertation not just the journal article cannot, cannot be the only format of scholarship so maybe you can think about that we are stuck with that right 
I think that's all of the questions that we had. Um, do you guys have any questions for us or do you have anything that you want to plug in the episode and brag about for a minute? Nothing. <laughs> so, so Nick and Paula, so which year of the PhD program you are in? So I am going into my fourth year and then Nick is going into his second year. Yes. Okay. Okay. All the best. I think from uh, the podcast is, uh, I want to say the podcast is just the beginning, but anybody can research uh, if they need any support you know we got a lot from the society and uh, we would love to uh, work with others not as co-authors I and mean, that's not the ultimate goal as or you say publication is one thing but any help that anybody from your community and extended community our door is quite open oh that's great thank you so that's much great. i really appreciate uh, you guys taking the time i know it's late over where both of you are at i just appreciate you speaking with us yes oh, a great conversation. learned a lot from both of you thank you it was thank a so nice much and all the best thank for your phd and uh, strong publications those would happen in due time so it's just a matter of time just stick to it and it's going to happen all the best oh, well thank you right. thank you but I really liked them. I feel like I got really good advice that I had not heard before, like especially about, you know, reading other disciplines like history and mm -hmm. reading outside of just journal articles. I think that's really good advice. And they were so friendly and personable. I really just liked them a lot. <laughs> I love the conversation, the topic. Um, it seems as if they kind of like pushed the boundaries in terms of you know, like the topic area and four to five years of field work. That's mm -hmm. a long time. Sure is. Oh. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I was thinking, oh, wow. No wonder why people say doing the qualitative work is not the best pre-tenure decision. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, you're already, I mean, your third year going in, once you've gotten your job, that's when you start being evaluated heavily for tenure. And if you still are working on your field work, that's got to be a little terrifying. Oh, my God. That's crazy. But yeah, yeah. It is, it's fun. I loved it. And I also liked how he mentioned, uh, you know, that our impact to scholarship is more than just journal articles. Yeah. That might be an unpopular opinion. Oh, I'm sure. Especially for some of the people that we talk to frequently, they would definitely think that that's not the case. So, yeah. But, you know, that definitely a big impact there. I'm telling you, I I was hooked from that very first paragraph. And like, even if I had not had a child, I think that still would have really made an impact on me. And maybe it's partially too, because like in my dissertation, I'm looking at a grand challenge in terms of looking at sexual abuse that is rampant in our organizations against children, you know? Um, so I really resonate with wanting the research to impact and make a difference in the problem that's occurring, because it'll really make me feel like I've accomplished something in my life if I know I'm coming up with something that can help society in the long run. And I feel like they've done that in their paper. Mm -hmm. I think that's the millennial in you. Oh, yeah. In the world. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but yeah. The question is bigger than the answer. Yeah.